0: How do you effectively communicate across generational lines? That's what we're going to be talking about today on the Monday Christian Podcast. And this is obviously a super relevant topic because a lot of times people struggle with this. We struggle to only communicate maybe in our age range. But how do you communicate with people that are older, younger than us? And uh, how do you do so in a way that relates to them and their personal life experiences? We're going to talk about that and a whole lot more on this week's edition of the Monday Christian Podcast. You're listening
1: to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkoff.
0: Hey, hey there, welcome to the Monday Christian podcast. Once again, May 16th, getting into summer here, Dave, Saturday, I had a kind of an interesting experience. My buddy and I was, were, or two of my buddies were all on the lake. We're kayaking, going out and we're about a mile out. And then I get this text. See, my wife and I, we like to surprise our, each other with different things. And so this year or tomorrow is my 33rd birthday, right? Here I reach perfection I think, I think. <laughs> um, about a mile out in the lake and then she has the wife of one of my friends text and say hey we've got an emergency you need to come back to the house so we paddle as fast as we can as fast as you can in a kayak a mile back and then back to the house and there's about 20 guests there and they throw a surprise birthday/ slash graduation. Thing so anyways that's been my experience this last weekend so my wife she got me and she got me pretty good
1: do you like so do you like surprises like that yeah 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 yeah. that's uh that's good i'm i'm glad that's that's one of us (laughs) that like that kind of stuff
0: Uh, no, that's it's the, fun, and it's better if I pull it on other people, but hey. I know, I you seem to
1: love that kind of stuff, man, and I'm just like, <laughs> I would like some advance notice so I can prepare, so I can, I'm thinking about meaningful conversations I can have while I'm there and stuff, like it just, <laughs> it's not a fun way to live, as I'm a terrible person. <laughs> it, it just keeps you, it keeps you on the edge.
0: Uh, yep, yeah, yep. for sure. <laughs> well, totally unrelated, but our guest today, Daryl Hall, wrote a book called Speaking Across Generations. Messages that satisfy Boomers, Xers, Millennials, Gen Z, and beyond. Just had an interesting conversation with a number of church planners recently, kind of about some of these themes here. And so Daryl's book has got me thinking. And and Dave, what's interesting is um, a lot of times we don't know how to connect with people in the church that are in these different camps. And I think sometimes maybe it's talk on social media. It's it's the way we. Maybe it's uh, give small group presentations or, or the way that we talk with people. It's just we're kind of speaking past each other because we have these generational barriers. And so we're going to get yeah. into some of that today. And I'm excited. I think this is going to be, yeah, just very beneficial.
1: Yeah, I see in his writing. So, if, you know, for our audience that does, doesn't know, we usually get advanced copies of of the writing that we're, the people were having on. And reading uh, Daryl's book, I just you have a little, you have good information there about some differences between generations, but you also have a lot of pastoral wisdom Mm -hmm. uh, that I think extend even beyond, um, so he talks about preaching some in his writing, but even beyond that, I just, I found the writing very compelling, and man, there was just some of these moments, I've I've got a few of them written down, but just some some powerful statements about communicating, and uh, I think this is going to be a great conversation for our audience.
0: He's the pastor, campus pastor of Elizabeth Baptist Church in Conyers, Georgia, where he regularly preaches and teaches across five generations of people. So, Darrell Hall, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Great to have you.
2: Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you, Dave, for having me.
0: Well, it's our pleasure. And let me ask you this. Did you grow up in Atlanta? What's kind of yeah. your personal journey of coming to faith in Christ? What's the, What did that look like for you?
2: Yeah, great question. So, first of all, I am a native of uh, Atlanta. Uh, from my neck of the woods, we would describe me as an AT alien. Mm. And, uh, that is a rare group of us who are natives who still live in the city. Atlanta has become, you know, this melting pot, so to speak, over the last 20 years. And we're thankful for all of those who migrated here to make our city better. But, yeah, I'm born and raised here in Atlanta. And what's so interesting... What's the
0: demographics of that look like in Atlanta now? Because I moved from Toronto and very diverse obviously there. So what's how has Atlanta shifted in
2: the last few years? You mean racially diverse or what are you? Yeah. Mean? Yep. Yeah. I think Atlanta is is definitely a racially diverse area, but I think for African Americans it's a it's a preferable place to live. It's a good place as far as opportunities, upward mobility, uh, income, you know, great jobs. You got great organizations here that employ many uh, minorities, women and you know, African American folk like myself. So it's a racially diverse area, but I think it's also a great area for minorities to to advance and get opportunity and, you know, be able to live well, I would say, compared to to other cities in the Southeast region. Right.
0: And then coming to
2: faith in Christ, what did that look like for you? Oh, man, it's is I don't know the word to describe it. I think it's surreal is probably the word I would use because the church where I pastor now is one of the campus pastors. Is the only church I've ever been a part of my entire life. So wow. I'm a prenatal member of this church. You, you're turning 33. Uh, happy early birthday to you. I'll be 36th in Ju- 36 in July. And the church I work at now is the church my mom sang in the children's choir at when she was younger. So I've only ever been a part of one church. And I accepted Christ. I was six years old. I'll never forget the day. Uh Our pastor at the time was an older man. He was about 60, 70 years old. He extended the invitation or in the terms of our culture, he opened the doors of the church. And I just remember going down to give my life to Christ uh, as a little boy. I remember the day I got baptized, but I also remember the time as a teenager where the meaning of that commitment started to really seep into how I approach life and how I took personal accountability for my relationship with the Lord. And I think I must have been about 16 years old when I read through scripture for the first time. On my own, it was just one of those things in hindsight that the Holy Spirit drew me to. I can't take any credit for it. You know, I had all of the same interests as normal boys who were my age in my area. It was just I would read a couple chapters a night uh, in a in a parallel Bible from the NIV version until I finished scripture. And So except the Christ at six really took seriously my relationship with the Lord around 16. And then I realized at 17 that God was calling me to preach and hmm. accepted my call to preach and preach my first sermon at 17 years old.
0: They started you young. Yeah. <laughs> what was that first day like? Because I remember yeah. my first sermon, I think it was in class and it was right. dreadful.
2: All right. So in our church tradition, we our first sermons are typically held at 3 p.m. in the afternoon at the church. And depending upon, I guess, the pastor's favor of you or some of the leaders, you either get to preach from the floor or you get to preach from the pulpit. So I was blessed to be able to preach from the pulpit. It was a 3 p.m. service, April 25th, 2024, and my church showed me tremendous support. I mean, my pastor supported me, the leaders supported, my family supported, and I just have this vivid memory of experiencing for the first time what it feels like for the holy spirit to carry you yeah hmm. um, you know when you can't take credit for what's happening when they're watching it and in many ways you're watching it too <laughs> yeah. uh as god is god is using you and, I, and that, that was my experience and many people supported me then and even now and so man i reflect with uh, with a happy heart on that day
1: do you do you feel like your church culture in particular where you're at has done a, a good job of that because, you, you know, you write about intergenerational relationships and here you as a 17-year-old, probably in retrospect, you remember some of the things you said or even that first sermon like, man, that was, that had a lot of room to grow, but man, these people love me and man, they really encouraged me and man, they sh- they shepherded me into this leadership and affirmed my calling. Like, can you, what, in, in that culture, um, was it an affirming place for you to grow and what did that, connected to your writing, what did that intergenerational uh, thing look like for you early on in ministry?
2: Man, that's a great question. My church was definitely supportive of me and particularly, I think my church saw me or may even now see me as a, as a key link in our congregation becoming intergenerational because my peers supported me, loved me, uh, and, and responded well to me, teaching Bible study and teen choir rehearsal, and you know, speaking up in in youth church, and then you know, vice versa. My pastor, who is a exer, in most of our congregation who are young boomers and exers, definitely affirmed and supported me as I assisted him. So I think my church, in large part, saw me then and probably see me now as you know a key factor in our church truly becoming intergenerational. If I could be completely transparent, though, as I reflect. I do, sometimes, I don't know if the word is mourn, I don't know if the word is sigh, I don't know if the word is sadness, but I do think about a lot of the people I grew up with who didn't get that same support and who didn't stick and stay, uh, so to speak, to our church that we grew up in. And I think part of that is because of our traditional understanding of what it means to be called into ministry. And so for me, because it was a path towards vocational ministry with preaching and teaching as some of my primary gifts, I think that I was supported in ways that other people my age who may not necessarily be called to serve in a formal church capacity may not have been. And so while I celebrate and appreciate the support I've gotten, I don't do, I don't celebrate it without remembering some of the other peers I had who I just wonder sometimes about their, where they are in their life. And, and I sense in many ways, a, uh, a responsibility to, to share with my generation, what the previous generation has shared with me. And so that's kind of the spirit behind, you know, the book, that's how my church, it's my heart and desire to see us do it at a higher rate. I think that inspired it plus being appreciative for all that the previous generations, you know, poured into me and opportunities they gave me to grow.
0: That calling, that's a tricky word, isn't it, Dave? I've yep. thought about that a lot in my life, right? In my my journey, I've had an evolution of what does it mean to be called? What does that look mm-hmm. like? And kind of one of the, the back stories that gets to the Monday Christian podcast, kind of comes a little bit out of that, is that each of us, right, are, are called to live right. out our faith all throughout the week and, and finding different ways to do that, right? Like like Because yep. we often divorce the two, right? I'm Sunday, and now here, I live a different life on Monday, and, and kind of finding ways to incorporate our faith all throughout our lives, that I was writing about this just the other day, you know, simple habits of life, you know, sleep, mm. what do we choose to eat in the morning, the mm. that first comment we say to our spouse, that, you know, mm. all these things, subtly, in small ways, make up who we are and how we live out our faith, so, okay, you share, uh, there was a time that you were asked to speak to, okay, you need to share this story. The okay. first time you share in front of your entire congregation kind of came as a little bit of a surprise to you from what I understand.
2: Yeah, so this is after my official first sermon. By this time, I was on staff uh, as youth pastor, and I was in my early 20s. I must have been about 23, 24, and our church was going through a significant boom. We had just recently be, you know, become a, a multi-site church. I think at the time we were probably up to three or four campuses across the Metro Atlanta area. And it was dur- during our highest attended service out of the 10 we had on Sunday at the time. Of this course. was the single <laughs> highest attended service <laughs> at the main campus. And it must've been a packed sanctuary. And so here I am, I'm in the chapel. Which is where our teens gather. And we had like 150 teenagers who I re, I was in there preaching to at the time. And I'm I couldn't even remember what the sermon's about. Ezra man, I wish I could, but all I this know is, is a That's I, I, that probably. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm mid-sermon and I see. What some may describe as a stage manager. Let's just describe her as that. But she was one of the people who helped to facilitate behind the scenes of the main sanctuary service. She walks into the space where I'm preaching. She politely disrupts me mid sermon and announces that our senior pastor is not going to make it back from one campus to the main campus in time to preach. And she informs me and all the students that I have 10 minutes before I need to be in the sanctuary. So I have five minutes. To wrap up this sermon, and so I don't know what I did, but I wrapped up the sermon. Man, it, it was a lump in my throat. I walked down from the pulpit in the chapel, walk out of the chapel right into the side door of the sanctuary, into a room full of, you know, Gen Xers, Boomers, and uh, and above, and the choir singing. And after they finish singing, I have to get up and preach, and I essentially preached the same message I had prepared for the youth but in the moment had to think through what it meant to adjust it and adapt it to, to, uh, to the adult experience. So that was a day I'll never forget.
0: (laughs) Well, if you were to go back and you were to have known that in advance, Mm -hmm. but you had to preach the same sermon, what are the different ways you would have prepared differently? Like, was it kind of a shock as you're going through and you're thinking, man, I've got to speak to a totally different group of people. Did the whole way that you shared that change?
2: Uh, Yeah, if I could go back, what I would change, if I knew in advance, based on what I know now that I would have to do that, I would just be more dialogical with the youth and with the adults, I would be more, I would include more extra biblical authority, resources, I would bring in more support to stimulate intellect, and I would probably prepare for the students an outline that sounds like complete sentences, but for the adults, I would probably prepare an outline that sounds like one-word buzzwords for them not to forget. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned in your book – so one of the – I love some of the, the way you say some of this, but you talk about generational intelligence. Um, can you give an example maybe uh, – a negative example or a positive example, either way, what is someone exhibiting what you would call generational intelligence? Because in the book, uh, which I would highly recommend that you read, uh, there's there's sort of breakdown by chapter after the first few chapters uh, by generation and op- even demonstration about how to speak well uh, inside that sort of context. But maybe maybe give an example of someone who exhibited this well for, in your life, or what does it mean to have generational intelligence.
2: Man, what a great question. So, generational intelligence in short is my ability to appreciate that the the brackets between which in years, the years between which a person was born means that they have certain cultural perspectives in common with people who were also born in that window of time that is other than people born in different windows of time. And it affects the way they engage the world. Generational intelligence means that baby boomers, anybody born between 46 and 64, in general, have been shaped similarly, and therefore may see the world similarly, that is different from the way millennials, Gen Z, or what have you may see the world. And the way it's usually exhibited, in my opinion, is negatively. For example, you may have a boomer or an older Xer who is convinced that their younger millennial child or relative or coworker is uh, is lazy because they went to college, got a degree, moved back home, and are content, so it seems, uh, to stay back in the room that they grew up in. And they don't seem ambitious enough. And, you know, when I was 24, I was doing this and doing that. And I think usually it creates friction, the lack of generational intelligence, where people would uh, accuse one person of another generation of being something derogatory or negative, like millennials assuming that boomers may be mean spirited, or older Xers assuming that young Zers may be lazy. And because they don't engage the world, through the sensibilities we use to engage the world, then we immediately assume that it's negative or worse by comparison than the way that we see the world. And it creates friction between parents and children, uh, between grandparents, obviously, and grandchildren, between teachers and students, between bosses and their subordinates, between pastors and their congregations, uh, anywhere that there's a generational dynamic in play, because I think that this lens is insidious. (laughs) is one of the lenses that we use to view the world that we're not not aware of. We usually look at racial lenses, gender lenses, socioeconomic lenses, educational level lenses, religious lenses, political lenses, but do we consider that the cohort someone was born in, their generational lens is just as viable? So I think that's the need for generational intelligence to help you know, kind of counteract some of the negative and critical ways it comes out in relationships.
0: I wasn't really thinking of this question, but when you just mentioned that, those racial lenses um, and so forth, that list you gave, when you think of the generational lens, is that, do you, th- you see that as the, uh, where, where would you rank that, I guess, on the list?
2: Ooh, that is a good question. Yeah, I think, well, what I would say is difficult about the generational lens is that the other ones are easier to see. Mm-hmm. Or discover <laughs> it's easy to see that hey we may be we're of different races it, it's easy to see that hey men and women those are different genders usually right it's easy to see based on the zip code someone lives in what their socioeconomic status may be and then if you want to discern their religious or political lenses you ask a few key questions and listen to some of the rhetoric they, they use in response and you can better understand that lens. I think the reason the generational lens is important to me is because it's climbing the list. Mm. In my opinion, in America, as we become browner, as we become more diverse racially, I think some of the demarcation that used to be distinctly racial in the coming years may be more socioeconomic, meaning have, have nots, and also more generational. Meaning mm. we may we may see in the next... 15 years that millennials, race aside, have more in common with each other than their boomer grandparents do, who were probably more separated by race. Mm. So so, you, so I'm <laughs> 35, Ezra, you're 33, okay? In the next 10 years, you and I, culturally, generationally, our culture may be more similar than you to your grandparents and me to mine. Mm. you and i may share some sensibilities based on the fact that we uh in 10 years from now lord willing we'll be you know nearly middle-aged millennials compared to the way our own grandparents so we may agree more with each other on key value issues than we do with our own grandparents on those same issues so i think it's climbing the list in importance
0: dave i don't know what your thought would be on this but when i think sometimes of the way people my age our age think um a lot of times it's not so much in terms of denomination, right? So we might have, I might have someone, I came from more of a Methodist background. So I might have someone that has, comes from likewise from more of a Methodist background, but if they came from an older era, um, we're generally speaking, I'm just processing this out loud, but I think it would be the case. Generally, I'm, I would find I have more in common with someone who is my sage same age range, but might be a slightly different denominational perspective, We, I w- sometimes find that I have more in common with them than someone of my particular denomination, because there's different ways—I don't know, Dave, what would you say?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting in your framing of this as, as uh, something for preachers specifically, um, it's like uh, I've seen people try to use rhetoric to engender a certain response from an under 35 crowd, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work at an institution of higher education, but uh, making an appeal as sort of like, this is the company, guys. You gotta, you gotta love the company, and and I'm like, no, don't say that. They're, they're suspicious of the man. The man is not their friend, right? Like. It's just bad psychology, and I think there's a little bit of what you're saying, this generational intelligence. but so let me ask you this, Daryl. what okay. what are the limits of this? because, okay, I, I would find it would, it would it be very easy you you mentioned, oh, uh, i don't I don't want to read your book to you, but this was awesome. To pander to the gathered audience by harping on their collective frustrations without explaining how a biblical text mediates wisdom for their experience is a misuse of voice. Doing so may be effective politicking, but it is ineffective preaching. So how do we, how do we speak Boomer, for example? Like yep. I, if I get into a certain audience, I probably almost instinctively do that cool. in, some, in some measure. But like how do I do that without also pandering? Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Or being manipulative? Because mm-hmm. I think for someone that could read this, I think if they are if they don't have good character, they yep. could say something like, oh, here's how I can get what I want from this group of people. Um, so how do we be authentic? Uh, how do we challenge the faulty? So I'm barely a millennial. I don't really want to be called one. I'm almost, I'm like an exennial. Okay, so okay, I kind of have that. the bad. I have like bad traits of both. Okay, okay. I, all the bad of, of both in me. But how do you... How do you say, okay, this information explains them, but it doesn't excuse. How do we challenge, mm-hmm. Ezra? You don't like long questions, so how's this for a long windup? How do we challenge? We're ch- doing great. <laughs> great. Yeah. <laughs> in short, nice. let me take another breath here. Yeah. <laughs> to sum it up, mm-hmm. no, seriously, how do how do we challenge someone in this in a generational context, but also say something that makes it hearable? Like, what's the balance there where Ooh. we're not pandering?
2: Yeah, man, that is. It's a layered question. I think it's a good one. Um, so let me try to walk the layers with you. First of all, Dave, I appreciate that you working in higher education or thinking of examples from, you know, company speeches can identify that there's some viability to what I'm trying to share beyond just a preaching moment. What was difficult in writing, and I'll just give this to you guys in your audience for free, I didn't want to own that this was a preaching book because I believe that the application of the content could apply even outside yes. of a preaching moment. But the publisher really challenged me. I had to own that preaching was the case study or the the occasion for which I could kind of espouse some of these ideas and share these thoughts, even though I love preaching and I hope to be found faithful uh, in preaching. Now to your question, you, I think one of the terms you use in your question is in part the answer to your question, and you you use the word authentic. So before I get in the book to differentiating the generational languages, I'll talk about these five traits that, if we practice these traits, we can reach people of all generations and all ages. And authenticity um, is is implied, you know, in, in those those five characteristics. So the way to not pander is to to be authentically who you are first, okay? So I got a congregation of Xers and Boomers, but I'm a millennial. They don't want me to pretend to see the world the way that they do. They just want me to understand that they see it differently and to show due respect for those differences. So the way that we make sure not to pander is to be authentically who we are. I am authentically millennial. If we're using generational terms, I am authentically millennial and my boomer congregants and my exer congregants, they hear it, they see it in in all that I do. So that's the first thing, be authentically who I am, which was a struggle for me earlier. I thought it was all aesthetic. So I would dress like a, I would dress like a like a boomer preacher with dress, hoping that I have yes. that same effect. This when it's is not so as good aesthetic dude. at all. Is 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 so deep. So I have to, first of all, own that I'm a millennial. That's one way not to pander. I think another way not to pander is. Once you lose authenticity, you replace it with something else that people can sniff out. One of those is manipulation and hyper emotionalism and people are sensitive. I think these days, to both hyper emotionalism, uh, you know, manip- spiritual manipulation. Once I lose authenticity, I'm replacing it with something. And it's apparent when my motives change, even if I think I'm doing a good job to pull the wool over their eyes and, and to fool them. Um, so, first of all, I have to be authentically who I am. In, in the same way, you know, as a man, I can't pander to women in my preaching, they can sniff, sniff it out as a phony, right? As a a middle-class guy, though I was raised in poverty, I can't pander to the rich by pretending to speak, you know, their language in a way that will honestly sound like a cheap knockoff. It'll come out as somebody who's not authentic to that space trying to employ lingo to garner a response. The same will be true generationally. If I was just employing lingo, and quite frankly, a lot of older pastors may do this, where because they hear the new pop song or they heard some lyrics to the new hot track for the summer, they'll throw those lyrics in a sermon thinking that using those lyrics is speaking intergenerationally. When really so You're is. saying
0: I shouldn't do that, man.
1: <laughs> Ezra. <laughs> Ezra.
2: <laughs> <laughs> or hey. if you do it, own the corniness of it. You yeah. Know what I mean? own... Self-deprecation. Yeah. Make yeah, yourself like... the butt of the joke. Hey, I'm 33. I'm a young 33, but I was listening to the radio and I've never heard of this artist blank singing this song blank. So let's have some fun laughing at me while, you see what I'm saying? Make self the butt of the joke. That's me owning, hey, I'm wholly millennial. You young Gen Zers, I don't listen to your music. (laughs) So instead of me trying to pretend like I'm up on lingo, let me own that I'm millennial in anything I do lingo-wise intentionally make myself the butt of the joke because here's what i do once i intentionally make myself the butt of the joke we laugh together
0: so daryl you talked about these five different groups in your book traditionalists baby boomers gen x millennials gen z first if you could just kind of define these different groups um just real briefly and then i'd like us to look at each of these kind of in sequence and Talk to the person, the everyday Monday Christian that is interacting with people, maybe it's in their family, small group, work, that are in these different categories. How would you, how do you respond to people in these different, uh, how do you interact with people in these different age groups?
2: Yeah, great question. So the five generations you mentioned are at the time of my writing were the five generations in America who had adults who were represented in the adult population. So the traditionalists, or the silent generation of those born in 45 and before then baby boomers born between 46 and 64. Then Xers born between about 65 and the early 80s. So maybe like 82, depending upon whose bracketing you're looking at. Then millennials, which is my group, we're born between the early 80s and late 90s. So let's say 83 to like 98. And then you have Gen Z who were born between 99 and about 2012. And then the other, which I didn't write about because they're all children right now, is the Alpha Generation, born between 2013 and now. And so those are the brackets that my friends at Barner Group use to help subdivide people into generational cohorts. Um, if I was trying to interact with people in these cohorts, I think the first thing I would be is authentic to who I am, transparent about my my perspective of being a lifelong learner i think that's very important so as a millennial i'm kind of wedged in between it's some older than me and some younger than me but if i position myself as a lifelong learner i think i could identify with or have connection with people age aside but if i was trying to communicate an idea or a point or a principle to these different age groups I think that's where the nuance would would come in. I would be very respectful in my approach to older generations and very relatable in my approach to younger generations. That's kind of how I would adjust.
0: Well, here's one of the quotes you made on the traditional. I want to get your feedback. You say, because many people born before 1946 did not achieve high levels of education, simpler language and rhetoric, rhetoric are more appealing. However, elders are not unintelligent. They possess a wisdom gained from struggle through some of America's worst times. Expand on that.
2: Yeah, so that statement helps us to not just appreciate how they communicate, but why they prefer simpler, direct, applicable, strong, forceful language. Because to, to come through struggle gives you a wisdom that college can't manufacture anyway. <laughs> and so m- many of the people in that generation were shaped mentally and in their belief system by real life and of necessity not able to kind of achieve some of the higher heights of education and so what that means in communication is because of what they've come through what they've seen and what they what is now concrete which is no longer abstract to speak to them in clearer more concrete language is a better way to connect so for example if I'm preaching about how good God is. There's no question in God's goodness. There's no question. There's no tease. There's no turning to the left or the right. There's no considering it from another perspective. God is good. I'm going to say it strong. I'm going to say it loud. I'm going to say it multiple times. And as I progress to the end, I'm going to say it more and more and more with assurance. And that's because of the assurance they have from life experiences that shape their belief. In, God, in God's goodness, or in communication. The other thing about that generation, which is unique, is they heard some of the most life-changing messages through one-way communication mediums. Radio. Many of them <laughs> sat around radio to hear presidential addresses. So this idea of two-way communication, give and take, and dialogue is something that, not that they can't adjust to, but it's not in the preference because of the coming of age years it was not a it was not a reality of the way strong messages were communicated strong leaders communicated strong messages through one-way mediums and you see that in a lot of the preachers and pastors who connect well with people who are in their 70s and above strong and messages
0: you have to earn your seat at the table
2: yeah you do right. yep yep you do so um yeah i hope i answered your question
0: baby boomers let's go there um okay. You write in 1946, the most babies in American history were born from 1946 to 1964. Just some of this is refreshing and, and kind of interesting. Uh, approximately four million babies were born per year, hence the bottom, uh, the boom in baby boomers. So, how's this generation different from traditionalists?
2: Boomers are different from the previous generation. From the, the sheer nature of their bigness, caused American society to retrofit itself around them. <laughs> America reshaped itself to become the world boomers wanted to live in. And so marketers would attract them. Major cities were built on their backs. like You know, suburban hubs would attract them out of these rural spaces that they may have been raised in and born in to create these metropolises and grow these big businesses and grow these big cities and, you know, Uh, boomers are the have it your way generation from the sheer fact that the world reshaped itself around their sheer bigness. And even now as we we sit and record, many of them, many boomers, the young ones at least, still sit on the mountain of, various mountains of culture. They are the gatekeepers on almost every mountain of culture is led by boomers at the top, church included. Uh, And so one of the ways they differ from their parents is not that they don't appreciate direct, concise and powerful language is that they appreciate a tease before we get to the direct, concise, and powerful language. Because boomers have this, this, this. I, descri- I, I, I define it as skepticism, but it's really this pulling away, so to speak, from the exact way their parents lived and saw the world to more of a do it your own way approach to the world. And so when it comes to communication, some tease helps to stimulate attention and create edge and create a little uh, uh, suspense before this rousing culmination in this powerful, clear, you know, principle. And and preachers do it very well. I think politicians as well do it very well, but boomers would appreciate a tease. Boomers would appreciate a, a, a little bit of a lean away from exact traditional points of views, though they can appreciate it how through that lean, you go back to the main point. For example, C.S. Lewis nails it with Boomer communication in his trilemma for Christ. Is he liar, lunatic, or Lord? C.S. Lewis nails it. If I was preaching a sermon about the true nature of Jesus to a room full of folk born between 46 and 64, that would be my title. (laughs) Granted, I'm citing C.S. Lewis, but it gives me so much room for tease, is he a liar? Perhaps. How could a 33-year-old say that before Abraham was, I am? Is he a lunatic? How could this young rabbi, you know, say he's older than the father of Israel? Or is he really Lord before Abraham was, I am? Yes, he is Lord. And I think boomers would appreciate that tease towards, you know, arousing approval of, of, of truth.
0: So then let's take that, though, with the next generation, okay. say Gen x millennials. hmm they hear the same illustration. Are they going to listen to that and say, uh, well, uh, maybe he was just a legend, right? Yes, they are. <laughs> source, right? yes. <laughs> you didn't give the full picture, right? Yeah. We need to We need to add another. Well, what, what would a Gen X say to that similar message?
2: A Gen Xer would say the same. Maybe he was a legend, and you need to prove to me, prove it, that he's not. Gen Xers is where. Intellect really became necessary in effective communication. It's not to say that the generations before were unintellectual, it's to say that Xers were so brokenhearted by all of the institutions that let them down that they use their brains to guard their hearts. And so no longer do you get access to influence my heart until you respect, stimulate, and engage my intellect to the fullest. And I may or may not agree. Mm, post-modern yeah, right, right. post post-christianity no longer holding to the judeo-christian meta-narrative of history right gen x is the one who said okay go ahead and espouse your point and i'm gonna fact check you when i get home yeah you know okay or right preacher. now yeah, or, yeah. Right, or right now millennials is right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> at the time of their coming of coming of age gen xers as the internet came out and Post-secondary education and degrees, and higher learning picked up and skepticism turned into downright uh, disbelief of truth. Every institution we told Xers to trust in broke their hearts. Mm. So they use their brains to guard their hearts. So if I'm preaching about Jesus's nature, Xers are going to want more. Extra biblical citing proof, archaeological finds. Dead sea scrolls, then they are gonna want the Bible says, Isaiah said, such and such and such. Right. Say. And they, con- they
0: want some compliments to, to get them to think differently yep. about scripture. I mean, I'm I'm that way in a lot of some respects. Um, yeah. yeah.
2: You and I are millennials, <laughs> and so we just carry that forward. Right. We carry it beyond intellect to dialogue. We want you to sound like you have listened to other points of views. Yes, and, right. And give open affirmation to the otherness of somebody else's perspective. <laughs> Before, what do you, you think can- about this, Dave?
0: <laughs> this is triggering all kinds of thoughts. What What are your thoughts?
1: Well, right, because you can you can say the right things, but if you do it in a in a poor tone, you'll just be turned. You'll be tuned out. Yep. I mean, the under thirty five crowd yep. would almost be more enamored with somebody saying nothing nicely than they would. Somebody yelling about truth, and yep. that's just a generational thing, so, Daryl. What? How? How do you teach someone to communicate in a room that's intergenerational? Ooh. So, who gets preferential treatment, or are Ooh. you just dropping crumbs for everybody? I think that's because here, here's the danger. So, you're you're teaching someone to communicate. Maybe you're teaching the, the next generation of preachers in your congregation. If you're not careful, you're going to teach them the way you want to hear it. And by the time they actually give their first sermon, they are mostly like talking to the to the above fifty crowd, and the the younger folks are neglected, or vice versa you're You're so relevant that there's no respect given um to the people that oftentimes built a congregation yep. or like are the stalwart saints of this place how how do we bring people together in the way that
2: we communicate? Oh, man, what a powerful question so if I'm in a room full of different generations. How do I shape my my language and approach? If I'm um, speaking in a room, Dave, that I frequently speak in, it's easier to do than if I walk into a room blind. And this may be my only point. opportunity to speak in that room. So if I come in as a guest, then I'm going to have to do some quick, <laughs> quick uh, uh, demographic breakdown based on what I think I see in, in the in the landscape and in the age range. And what I would probably do is I would go with the language preferences of the higher majority. So to be honest, it's not just because I'm a millennial but it's also now because millennials are the largest population. I'm gonna stay somewhere between that boomer millennial preference in speaking in hopes that it better connects with most people compared to the extremes or the polar extremes right now of the oldest and youngest generations. That's if I'm walking into a room blind, you carry me into a room blindfolded, take the blindfold off. Daryl, look around the room. You got five minutes, (laughs) you know, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm going to survey the room in that way. And me personally, I'm going to be more dialogical and I'm going to try to give weighty, uh, 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 intellectual stimulants in my dialogue about said concept where So let's go with your concept, Dave. Why should we work for this company? All right, Do we work for the company because of the brand and history and the lingo? What I would do is I would hold those things in tension and I would say perhaps for some, but I think we should only work for this company. And now I'm switching the dialogue if we see this company works for us. And if we see that by working for this company, we can become the best versions of ourselves. You see, I just went from (laughs) more of a Mm -hmm. propositional to more of a dialogical. Mm -hmm. And so now what I've done is put the onus on the company, but also it's a shared onus. As you work for this company, we together will flesh out the values that shape the culture of not who we were yesterday, but who we are today. So that would kind of be my, my dialogical Uh approach in hopes that I catch (laughs) most of the people in the room. Now, you have an advantage if it's a room you speak in frequently, like a pastor to a congregation or a manager or a boss to a team or a professor to, you know, a classroom. If you're in spaces that you normally speak in, you have more of an advantage because what you can do is you can, you can, you can either space out your approach, or you can diversify your approach until your point becomes clear to all people involved. Let me explain what I mean. So, as a pastor in a multi or intergenerational congregation, if I know I have 52 Sundays to approach these same people, and if for the next four Sundays I want to help them appreciate what the Bible says about marriage, right? What I would do for those next four Sundays is on different Sundays, I would emphasize a different generational approach. And I would probably start with dialogue and move by the fourth Sunday towards the older generation. So I would start with why we disagree that marriage may be this and maybe that, and politically how it's become convoluted and you know, historically how, you know. And then I would go to some research on the second week i would talk research and citing of how children raised in certain homes may have an advantage compared to and how what divorce does and i would be open and honest about how my grandparents divorce shaped my mom and how that shaped me and then the next week i would go to more of an appreciation not for you know more of an appreciation for people who have been good examples instead of a depreciation for people who've been bad examples. And then the last week I may anchor it all in the Imago day in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. And could God have been up to something then that he's still up to now? So if I got four weeks in the same room, all I'm going to do is say the same concept marriage, and I'm going to just take a different generation. I'm going to spin it around and hopefully, Four weeks from now, everybody could have gotten something out of what
1: do, you, I said. do you find sorry, as I just follow up do you do you find that you do you do you perceive that it would be a temptation for pastors or somebody in leadership to kind of see who's up the chain, so who's on the elder board, who the movers and shakers are, who the who the who the board that runs the company is, and talk in a way that engenders their support? rather than talk to the whole congregation. Do you find? Do you oh, think yes. that would ever be a temptation?
2: Oh, that is a real temptation. And if I could just be honest in my response, not only is that a real temptation, but many communicators succumb to that temptation. And what I think that exposes is a bias towards money and power. Wow. And power, giving. yeah. It's, it's, wow. When we succumb to that temptation, we we reveal that our true bias is not to connect with people, is to keep certain people happy and that's how i think churches become generation that's how i think churches move towards generational stratification because we preach to or back to your earlier term we pander to the givers the establishment the leaders the high table (laughs) right we we pander to them and for fear of offending them we would rather alienate the younger generation who's not at the table who doesn't give equally or equitably. We would rather alienate them in an attempt to pander to those who are the establishment or some churches make the opposite choice. You know, yeah. hey, know. we're not gonna pander to those older folk. We're gonna go out and reach the younger po- people and then they also alienate the older congregation. That's a true temptation. But here's what I think we could do to to your question. <sighs> when people have given, led, mm-hmm. served, to help a church or institution or family become what it is? What do they deeply, deeply desire? Legacy is what they desire. So instead of pandering to their pockets, how can I connect with their heart? They really don't want all of what they built to go down the drain unless they're quite frankly selfish. So how do I get them? How do I connect with them in the sense of your heart and desire to see what you built sustain and to reach those in your family? Or in this constituency. Yes. Of a younger yeah. age. And we see the same thing happening politically. Wow. How do we reach those in your constituency? How do we reach those in your family? How do we reach those who are who are who should be here but who are not to carry on and improve what you've so much into? I think instead of pandering to their pockets and their power, I think we we help them to see from their hearts how they really don't want to see it go to waste. And therefore we have to create. Or we should do whatever work it takes to create an intergenerational space. And that means that what's yours must become ours. And language is one of the ways it can it can do that. Did I answer your question? So much Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, so much of this comes back to I feel like communication, right? Because yeah. exactly what you're just saying If you talk to a room full of people and then let's take music, right? Well, why are we singing this kind of music? I don't like this. This should be older or whatever, right? That's the easy one on the table. But I think churches that have done this well that I've seen, they have those constant conversations with people. And they say, hey, the reason we're having this kind of music that might not fit your genre exactly is because we want to reach the next generation as well. Yep. And suddenly that creates some buy-in, right? It because does. you're, oh, okay, so you are still seeing me. I'm still being heard. Yep. Um, and I might not like this, but yeah, okay, I can see how this is going to have long-term benefits yep. in my grandkids and things like that. Yep. Um, we got to wrap up here. But okay. one, one thing, since I'm a millennial here, um, yep. one of the points you made, unfortunately, about one-third, 33% of millennial adults say they walk out of a worship service feeling belittled, at least half the time and a quarter report feeling lost. Yeah. I, the reason I asked this a couple of years ago, I was listening to a message uh, by someone in Toronto at a church and I was listening to it. And I remember just sitting there and I was like, there is nothing here for me. Mm. Right. And it's, it's, it's a feeling where it's frustrating because I feel like I already knew exactly where the speaker was going, where we were going to land. And it's, it's kind of like, I feel belittled, and I walk out of it, and I'm, I feel more discouraged than when I've arrived. Yep. And that experience has stuck with me. And so, how how do we avoid that? How do we Amen. change the way that we, you know, connect, communicate so it really connects and
2: people don't feel that? Yeah, great leave. question. Right before I respond, can I ask you just a clarifying question? Yeah. You said that you were listening to the the speaker and you could predict where it was going. Did it go where you predicted? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think. Um, in that. In that scenario. and I, And I don't want to venture to speak for you, but let me at least, I think, try to represent maybe the collective point of view of our generation. If I can predict where you're going. And then you go there there's an anticlimactic experience for me, especially if where I predicted you were going insults my intelligence in the process. Like if you're gonna give a sermon about, if you're gonna give a sermon about money and I'm already skeptical about what churches or religious institutions do with money. And I can predict that you're gonna talk about two or three things that you do talk about and you don't veer from that you don't bring me you don't bring me intellectually into the conversation so i never brought my heart to it so the reason yep. i'm offended is because i wanted more right i came here to hear this voice on whatever the subject matter was and my hopes and desires were for more and they were let down because it just turned into what was either predictable or what wasn't broad enough now let's say had you been in that church in toronto and i was sitting there with you the subject matter is giving and we both fear that it's going to go this one place and then all of a sudden the speaker begins to talk about how generosity as an attribute of god far exceeds the money in our hand okay (laughs) you know we may lean in or if the speaker takes it through a role we couldn't predict, but that is a pleasant surprise. I think we would, uh, we would have felt like our time was valued. Here's what I think we could do to reduce the way millennials often feel when they leave church. Our t- there's a different tone between monologue, public discourse, than dialogue. Yes, and dialogue has a tonal characteristic. That preachers have to have to adapt in the way we communicate. It doesn't mean that we're changing the truth. It doesn't mean that we don't stand on scripture. It does mean that we position ourselves as a partner in dialogue and not a litigator in court.
0: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. That whatever metaphor a preacher uses in our mind comes out tonally. So if I see myself as a dialogue partner, like on a podcast or over a plate of waffles and fried chicken, there'll be a different tone that I'll take than if I see myself as spiritual authority behind sacred desk with garments of praise, you know what I mean, and, and degrees, yeah. you know, to boot. So yeah. adopting the tone of dialogue, I think, is is one way we keep millennials from feeling that way. I think another way is, is we must fight hard to remove cliche from our rhetorical approach. That's a lot of communicators, demean rhetoric and eloquence, but still use it every week. It is impossible for me to give any kind of phraseology to whatever I believe without employing rhetoric to do so. So the issue is not rhetoric is lazy rhetoric. Yes. Is yep. rote, monotonous, unchallenged rhetoric. And right. so instead of bemoaning the main tools we use as communicators, let's challenge them. Let's ask ourselves if I were to preach this same sermon five times, would I preach it the same way every time? How could I nuance mm-hmm. it? How could I grow? What could I read? Who could I listen to? Who might disagree? what might i what might i be missing we have to ask ourselves as communication communicators these open-ended questions and what it will do is challenge our own rhetorical approach to whatever it is we're preaching but what it will also do is uh, it will pleasantly surprise the millennials in our congregation that we've thought beyond the way we used to think
0: man there's uh, i have like literally a dozen <laughs> questions more that i want to ask but one of the key takeaways i I guess that i'm getting from this conversation is that ultimately when we communicate with someone effectively goes back to kind of the five love languages right we all have these love languages we like and so if we relate on the one that we like with other people and that's we're not communicating on their level well i guess what we kind of love people the way we would want to be loved not as they would want to be loved and i think communication is similar in 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 that respect um you know i'm a millennial so i'm gonna you know but tailoring our met or our, our, the way that we communicate in a way that actually speaks to people, I, I think, is is key. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is the proof is in the pudding, right? Okay, that you can say, oh, we want to be a church for blank. We want to be a company for blank. But if everyone at a position of power yep. in the table is fits one of these five categories, yep that's the reality, right? Thanks. That's the, that's the reality of the situation. And so Dave, I know we got to wrap up anything that desperately need to cover here before we, we conclude.
1: I just, I was struck as I was reading this today, it's a function of loving others. You know, for, for me, it, I, I pastored uh, an elderly congregation, a little Methodist church for the last four years recently have moved on, but I, I served and mammed my way through every Sunday morning not to pander to the people in the congregation, but because that communicated respect to them. Yep. And I wanted an audience with them when I got behind the pulpit. Yep. And if I was, if I, if I, if I approached that sort of cavalier, like, like, oh, the, oh, that, that's such an outdated mode of communication. Like, no, you don't know your audience right. very well yep. now. Exactly. And I think those, I think framing what you're saying is so important here, Daryl, because I, I want to make the truth as hearable as possible. I don't want to. The, there, there's always there's going to be this huge spiritual battle going on, while I'm preaching or communicating, especially in in a ministry context. I don't I don't want to be further hampered by my own inability and lack of humility. Yep. Like I only know how to say this one way. Yep. Um, <laughs> And I, I, just, man, you've you've given me a lot to think about and a, a lot to grow. As soon as I'm done here, I'm gonna go run to my office friend over the corner and say, "We gotta read this book together," because uh, it was great. So thank, thank you. you.
2: Appreciate you guys for having me on. This was a a great conversation, and I'm just thankful that the Lord could use uh, could use me, and God is using you all. You know where you are. Thank you so mm-hmm. much, Dave. Thank you, Ezra. Yes. I appreciate you guys. Yeah. Best places people
0: can find you online.
2: Yeah, people can follow follow me on social media. That's the best best place to find me at I Daryl Hall, and that's D A R R E L L at I Daryl Hall on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, uh, and as well just my name Daryl Hall D A R E L L uh, Hall on, on Facebook is where you can find me as well.
0: As always, links in the show notes below. You can click on them, get Daryl's book, and stay up to date. So, Daryl, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys.
1: You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com.